0: This is They Create Worlds, Episode 176, The Sega Technical Institute. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. We have our hats on. We have our sacks full of wonderful gaming knowledge history. I'm not wearing a hat. What? What? It's the holidays, Alex.
1: Oh, those things.
0: Yes, those things. As part of the holidays, we want to say hello to all of you out there who listen to us And wish you all happy holidays, merry Christmas, happy Kwanzaa, happy Hanukkah, whatever it is that you celebrate or don't celebrate during this festive season of low Saturnalia. See, he knows more of them than I do. For all the Romans in the house (laughs) listening to this in AD 100. Who knows? Someone could just take this podcast, have it on a little MP3 player. It falls back in time and (laughs) the emperor listens to it. In which case, hi, Mr. Emperor. Hope you're enjoying yourself.
1: Yes, absolutely. You can't understand us because we don't speak Latin, but eh, whatever. Oh, right. They have to know Latin. (laughs) Anyway, that's right. Uh, Those of us here at They Create Worlds would like to wish you a, a very fine holiday season, no matter how you observe or don't observe all of that. I just wanted to look back really briefly on another year of the podcast. I mean, we've been doing this thing now since, geez, what, September 2015, right? So we're wrapping up, if I can do math, which is probably not, uh, seven years of this thing, just over seven years of this thing.
0: Give or take, yeah. About seven years, six to seven years, give or take, depending on how you want to do the cutoff. Right. So yeah, in April of this year, we
1: celebrated crossing 100,000 downloads across all episodes. After over six years of doing this, and we're already at 151,000 at this point. I mean, we're going to hit 200,000 in a year, a year and a half. Thank you all so much, those of you who have listened, those of you who have spread the word to other people, those of you who have been patrons. We do have a Patreon as well for the podcast. Just thank you all so much. When we started this thing, it's like, uh, we've said this before on the show, but but those who haven't listened to those episodes, it, w- it started with Jeff being like, you know, I like it when you tell me video game history stories, Alex, maybe other people would like it too, and... You know, being self-deprecating, I think, will always be a little niche just because we do the deep dives, but the audience has grown. You people have all turned out and had other people turn out, and I think Jeff said it best, so I'm going to let him say it again, I think Jeff said it best uh, about how, you know, we may be deep dives in video game history, but there's really so much more to it than that, I think, the stories we tell, right, Jeffrey?
0: I like to think of it as we're telling the same kind of stories that humanity has always found interesting, stories of intrigue. Stories of triumphs over adversity. Stories of love and loss. We get all of that in video game history. You may not think about it a lot, but you want political intrigue. Look at Tetris. (laughs) You want tales of love and loss or triumphs over adversity. The small video game company versus the large video game company. Or the small at-home thing and people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and becoming famous. Doom. There's so much out there in a whole bunch of different ways that you can really delve into the history and understand, and by knowing how video games have influenced society, which is arguably more so every single year, Mm -hmm. you can really understand where we as humanity is going.
1: Yes, and also how society has influenced video games, because I think as the podcast has matured, I think... This is less true if you look at some of our very early episodes uh, when we were still finding our footing, but I think as the podcast has gone on, we've really tried to put video games in context and discuss not just the other things going on in society at the time games were being made, but how other aspects of society were influencing video games. And that can be dramatic things like Vietnam War protests and the end of the military industrial complex, or it can be drier economic things like the strengthening yen thanks to Reagan's trade policies in the 1980s impacting the strength of the yen in the 1990s. But there's a lot of stories to tell. And of course, it'll always be centered on video games for us because that's what we do. That's what we're here for. It does resonate in other ways as well, and I know we're preaching to the choir here, but if anyone ever asks about this crazy long video game history podcast you listen to, that's kind of some of the things we feel are somewhat interesting about it, outside of, of course, just the
0: fascinating stories of the industry itself. Just like anything else in life. So yes, we have the patron, as Alex said. For all of you who support us on there, thank you very, very much. It feeds my Diet Coke edition and all the little equipment that we have to buy, upgrade, and change, and all the hosting cost of various things. And
1: let me tell you, that thing about the Diet Coke may sound flippant, but you don't know how many hours, and and I mean this, I try to build Jeffrey up every time that I talk about the podcast someplace else. You do not know how many hours Jeffrey spends making us sound as good as we do. It is truly a lot of work and it is truly a lot of. Diet Coke to keep him going. So it really is quite a thing that Jeffrey has done. This podcast would not be what it is without what he does on the front end as well, but especially on the back end.
0: If you want a thing, I think I average about every hour of this podcast that you listen to, it probably takes me about eight hours on a back end, usually. That's a combination of making us sound good, you know, doing all
1: the editing, as well as he goes deep on getting the show notes I don't know how many people look at the show notes, but we always, every game we reference and sometimes other technological things and even sometimes some societal things that we reference on the show, Jeffrey does put together show notes. He does not just do a search in Google or do a search on YouTube and just plug in the first thing that comes back as a result. He actually takes the time to curate and go through those and provide just the very best examples of additional documentary information or of gameplay footage, etc., Those show notes are definitely worth your time to check out as well. And Jeffrey really does put an incredible amount of work
0: into curating those as well. But in addition to all of that, I am willing to spend even more time helping you, the listener, by mailing you stickers. Yes, I have stickers. I still have stickers. I have a large, big box of stickers off to my left. I will spend my time to mail them to you. I don't care where you are. The United States... Somewhere in the world, north, south, east, west, I don't care. Anywhere on this planet, I will mail you stickers. Or if you're not on this planet and you can tell me a way I can actually mail things to you intergalactically, I will attempt to do
1: so. (laughs) We have sent stickers to many of our international listeners, so that's not just a hypothetical. We have absolutely done that. It is a sticker of our logo. It is a very high-quality sticker. I have one prominently featured on my work laptop as do actually a couple of my coworkers who thought the sticker looked cool and asked for one. If you want to represent the podcast, always, of course, no pressure. We do have those free stickers available. Uh, You just need to request them from us.
0: You don't even have to send us money or get a sticker to help support us. Just listening, leave a review on your favorite podcasting service. A lot of people say, hey, leave us a review and whatever stuff. And it's like, that's how people find you. That's what moves us up in various rankings on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, whatever it is, by people saying, hey, I like this, leaving a comment, upvoting it, whatever. It helps get the word out. Absolutely. And
1: we've said this before whenever we bring up the Patreon, the the podcast will always be free. We're dedicated to bringing this product to everybody, not gatekeeping it in any way. If you do like what we're doing here, if you have enjoyed what is now literally hundreds of hours of content on the history of the video game industry, you may consider checking out the Patreon. The address for it will be at the end of the episode in the closing credits as always and in the show notes as well. Anything you want to give is fine. If you only give a dollar, that's fine. Like I said, if you just keep listening, keep promoting it to your friends, maybe have us send you a sticker, it's not that you have to pay because we will always be free.
0: It just helps with the posting cost and my day coke addiction.
1: Absolutely. And the new equipment that we get from time to time and even potentially, depending on how much we get, even some of the research trips that I can now finally start undertaking again now that uh, restrictions are
0: largely lifted around the, the United States and around the world. Since this is the holiday season, we thought we'd do something special because we know our audience. I've seen the statistics. I hear you kids like a little company called Sega. Sega. Not just any Sega. One full of technology and an institute of Sega, STI. That's
1: right. The topic of conversation this week is going to be the Sega Technical Institute, which is really, I think it's fair to say, unique in the entire history of video games. Nothing quite like this has ever existed before. It's a development studio, which in and of itself is not unusual, obviously. But as we'll see as we discuss it, the way it was organized, the way it was operated, the way it was allowed to run, and the way it impacted Sega, I think, are very, very different than most first-party development studios where a, a Japanese company like a Nintendo, a Sega, or a Sony are setting up a new developer in the United States to make games for their consoles.
0: We know the history of Sega. We did a very interesting episode On Sega not just one two maybe even three or four I think I lost count at this point (laughs) where in the grand scheme of Sega is this is this before the war with Nintendo is this after the war with Nintendo is this during the time when they were off in Japan just doing service games (laughs) is this before we know which Sega this is because there's like Sega of America Sega of Japan Sega of that little island country in the middle of nowhere that really owns everything. I don't
1: know anymore. (laughs) So when we talk about the foundation of the Sega Technical Institute, we are talking about an organization that was established in 1990, so right at the start of what is going to become the Big Console War with Nintendo. However, as we are always doing on this podcast, there is some context from earlier Sega history that I think really informs this organization because Sega is a very, very unusual Japanese company. Now, we're not going to go back through the whole history again, because as Jeffrey said, we've done that. But there are a couple of things about Sega that I think we need to keep in mind as we start delving into the Sega Technical Institute specifically. The first thing is that even though Sega was a Japanese company from its foundation, in the sense that it was founded in Japan, incorporated in Japan, operated in Japan, It was, in many ways, an American company. It had this cross-cultural thing going on from the beginning. Of course, it was founded by Americans. David Rosen, who founded Rosen Enterprises, and Marty Bromley, Dick Stewart, Ray LaMere, all those people who founded Service Games, and then they merged their two companies together to form Sega Enterprises in 1965. All of the founders were American. Much of the board was American, though there were some Japanese individuals on the board. The senior executive staff was American. Even as late as the 1970s, internal corporate documentation and memos were done in English. All the way to 1982, from its founding back in the day to 1982, there was always an American at the head of the company specifically the Japanese subsidiary of the company. I mean, there was an American at the head of the company even longer than that when you consider the Gulf and Western purchase and the creation of Sega Enterprises Incorporated and all this other stuff that we talked about. But even the Japanese branch, once it became technically an American company under Gulf and Western, was run by an American all the way up until 1982. This was not your typical company. It had a lot of American practices— one thing, for instance, is they maintained a five day work week, which was not always common. Now, just like anyone in these industries, I mean, they crunched. One of Sega's earliest, longest tenured employees, who's going to be one of the protagonists of our story here, Hisashi Suzuki, who joined the company in 1962 and remained with the company until like 2000. One of the reasons that he joined the company. Why it was appealing to him when he joined in 1962 is because Sega had a five-day work week. At that time, with the economy still recovering and everything, it was very common for Japanese companies to have six-day work weeks. I'm sure in some cases people were probably even working six and a half days a week. I mean, very little time off. But Sega having that American DNA operated more like an American company. That's the first thing we have to remember about Sega when we talk about this, is they have a greater orientation toward the West than a lot of companies do, especially in this earlier time period. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the Sega of today, which is, of course, merged with Sammy to be Sega Sammy, it's much more Japanese today. I mean, that Americanness ness has worn off over time as the company has been truly a Japanese company since it was bought out by CSK Corporation in 1984. But that DNA was still there, and some of that identity was still there, and some of that connection with the West was there that is oftentimes not. Another thing to remember about Sega is that it has, for much of its existence, had more of a symbiotic relationship between its U.S. and Japanese branches. A lot of times, what you see most often when you have an American branch of a Japanese company, is they're primarily a marketing arm. They're just there to sell what's being made in Japan. They may have some input on which games come over or how games get localized, but at the end of the day, they're really just there to sell what's coming out of Japan. Sega, very early on, took a much more collaborative approach, because when Sega was first breaking into the video game industry, which we've talked about in other episodes, they were breaking in at a time when Japan did not have a lot of knowledge with solid-state devices. We're not even talking microprocessors here. We're even just talking about transistors, TTL hardware. So you had a large R&D department that were specialized in electromechanical games, and they needed a way to get in with solid-state games in general and microprocessors in particular, which were also starting to come in. As a result, they had gone looking for an American company that they could join forces with, and of course, they ended up buying Gremlin Industries in 1978. The relationship that they had with Gremlin was a lot different than the relationship you often see between dominant Japanese company and, and subordinate American subsidiary. There was a real partnership there. Now, they maintained very separate kind of product development apparatuses. Japan was doing what it was doing. Gremlin was doing what it was doing. They weren't just like a completely blended organization. But Gremlin was given a lot of leeway to keep doing what it was doing, I think, in part because, of course, the whole thing's being run by David Rosen, an American, out of Los Angeles. It's not being run by a managing director back in Japan, a Japanese managing director back in Japan. Frank Fogelman at Gremlin, his boss is David Rosen, who is just up the road in L.A. Gremlin's in San Diego. They had more freedom to keep doing their own thing and produce several hits in their own right, but also Sega understood that they were a resource that should be tapped. And so soon after purchasing the company, they sent a lot of their engineers over to Gremlin to get kind of a crash course in how to program games because they'd been working in TTL hardware. They worked on Gremlin's Noval computers, which kind of became the development system for a lot of Sega, both in Japan and, and the U.S. games in this time period. People like Hideki Sato, who would end up being in charge of all uh, Sega R&D development, the person behind, you know, the Master System, the Mega Drive Genesis, etc., on up through the Dreamcast, he was part of this. Steve Hanawa, who is known as the creator of Turbo, or at least the programmer of Turbo and other stuff at Sega, you know, he was part of this. They took their engineers over and they learned, and then Ago Kish who was one of the more senior programmers at Gremlin. He actually went and lived in Japan for a year and was working on stuff with them over there. And they started a tradition, even after this first training, of every summer selecting people from Sega back in Japan to come for the summer to Gremlin in the United States to learn a bit more about how to create solid-state games, how to program microprocessor games, just all of this stuff that Gremlin had the know-how to do. I think there's a lot of the DNA of the Sega Technical Institute in all of this. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that STI was a deliberate move to emulate what happened in the early 80s in the relationship between Gremlin and Sega Enterprises Limited back in Japan. I'm not saying that there was a specific, you know, it was really cool how we did that back then. We should do that again. There's no evidence that that's the reason for this, but it's just good to point out that this is a company that has always been more Western-oriented than most Japanese companies and has always been interested in combining the know-how and the experience of Eastern developers and Western developers in ways that can benefit both. I think that that's all very important to keep in mind when we start talking about the Sega Technical Institute itself, which we'll, of course, get to presently. The final thing that I think we need to remember as we start investigating the Sega Technical Institute is that Sega, in this period of time, when the Institute was founded in 1990, was run by Mr. Hayao Nakayama, whom we have talked about before in numerous Sega episodes. One of the things that we really touched on in our Dreams of Sega episode, when we were talking about kind of the decline of the company in the mid to late 90s and the Saturn and the Dreamcast era, was that in this period of time, Nakayama was very interested in becoming a global powerhouse. He was an ambitious man, and his ambition was to be the Disney of video games. We've talked about this, how he wanted to do the video game theme parks, and he wanted to have stuff that was in global taste. So he was really looking in this period of time to have a strong appeal in the West— I mean, yes, Nintendo and Nintendo games had a strong appeal in the West, obviously. They were very successful in the 80s. But companies like Nintendo and its big third-party publishers like Capcom and Konami, they were making for the Japanese market. And they were very happy that Americans also happened to like these things. And they did work to make sure that they only brought over concepts to the West that they thought would work in the West. They didn't publish everything in the West that they published in Japan because they knew some stuff just wouldn't work. But it was a secondary consideration for them in a lot of ways that Western market, that American market, or that European market, or European markets, as we always like to say, plural, were an even more distant kind of, eh, if they like it, great. If not, were Japanese companies. That was not Sega. Sega in this time period was really trying to appeal to a global audience and to a Western audience, to a Western audience both in the United States and in the Western European countries. It's primarily Western Europe in this time period just because Cold War and yada yada. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one is kind of mercenary. I think Nakayama and the Sega staff realized that it was going to be hard to ever overcome Nintendo in their home country, and they probably figured they had a better chance abroad. But number two, I do think this plays into the whole idea of having this global powerhouse. This is what Nakayama wants to be. He wants a universally recognized brand called Sega, and you need Western stuff in order to do that. Sonic the Hedgehog was a very calculated move to create something that they felt could be a mascot, not just in Japan, but in the West, for example. Now that we have all of these kind of bigger picture factors in mind, because we always like to try to take a little bit of a look at the big picture, whatever that may be in the context of a particular episode. The Sega Technical Institute specifically was the brainchild of the gentleman that I mentioned earlier, Hisashi Suzuki, who was one of the main bigwigs in research and development at Sega in Japan. He came up with this new idea. I don't know if it was just his idea alone, but he's, he's the one that we know was spearheading the idea. He came up with this idea that they should create a new development studio in the United States that would be partially a development studio, you know, partially involved in actually putting out product, but would partially also just be almost like a school, almost like a learning environment. Where you would bring together people from Sega in Japan with people hired in America, and you would have them work together on product. You would have blended teams of American and Japanese staff. They would learn the processes and the ways that each other worked. They would learn the cultural touchstones in each region that made games successful. They would together learn and grow and develop and make games that would hopefully have a global appeal, or at the very least, a Western appeal. To run this thing, it just turned out they had the absolute perfect person already on staff, by the name of Mark Cerny. We've talked about Mark Cerny a little bit before, but just to recap, he is one of the most remarkable developers in the history of video games, because he was a prodigy, a genius. He joined Atari at 17 He was already an elite arcade game player, and he joined Atari at 17 in 1982 to become an arcade game designer. He started in the industry in 1982. He was the lead hardware architect at Sony for the PlayStation 4 and the PlayStation 5. There are a small number of other people that started in the business in 1982 that are still hanging around in the business today. It's not like he's the only one. But none of them have that level of influence today. The man behind the PS5, the most cutting-edge piece of video game technology out there today, started work as a game developer in 1982. Kind of phenomenal when you think about it.
0: It really is to think that someone would be in an industry for nearly 40 years and still have a viable, high-hitting contribution
1: to have. Exactly. But I mean, he truly is a genius, is, you know, also a good manager and all of that. So he's, he's remained relevant. Very interesting individual. So Mark Cerny was at Atari during this kind of tail end of the so-called Golden Age. He helped out on a couple of products uh, when he first got there, most notably Major Havoc. Then kind of as everything was falling apart, he got his own project to do, and that was Marble Madness, which was his idea. He designed it. He created it. Marble Madness was basically a hit. I say basically because it did really well out of the gate, but it ended up being a really short game. And so even though it was very successful and it was released, it kind of fell off a cliff very quickly. But it was still considered a success. And at that point, he got the itch to kind of go off and do his own thing. You know, Atari was kind of in a difficult place at that time, 1984, 1985. <laughs> We've talked about that. We have Atari episodes you can listen to to find out why they were in a bad place. At that time, the teams were still very small. At that time, a programmer and an artist with maybe just a little help from a, like a sound guy and a technician or two could still pretty much create a coin-operated video game all by themselves. You didn't need a gigantic team. So Ernie kind of thought to himself, he's like, I've made my mark now. People know who I am because I did Marble Madness. What if I went out on my own and kind of freelanced and continued to do games? So that's what he did in 1985-ish. He ended up falling in with the people at Sega, which had just recently reestablished an American operation. So he ended up working with HAL Ivy at Sega Enterprises, USA, not to be confused with Sega of America. This is the Coin-op U.S subsidiary. He ended up working with HAL Ivy and working on a coin-op project kind of as a freelancer for Sega in the US. Well, that ended up not really going anywhere for whatever reason. So it turned out that the game wasn't really going anywhere. So he ended up getting recruited directly by Hayao Nakayama, the CEO of Sega, to actually come and be an employee of the company in Japan and work on games there for home consoles. Because this was about the time we're talking probably 1986 now, would be my guess. I don't have the exact years on this, but this is probably 86. It could be 87, but my guess is it's 86. In this period of time here, this is right when the Sega Mark III is about to be or is being released in the United States as the master system, the first real attempt by Sega to enter the home market outside of its home country. Once again, even at this early date, even before STI and all of that, Nakayama is thinking about global appeal. He's thinking about we need to make stuff that appeals to the West. It's all of these things. And so I think probably what happens here is Nakayama's like, we have this freelancer working on with us in America on an arcade project. But what we really need is people who can help us get this Master System thing going in the West. So he comes and personally recruits Cerny and says, come work with us and make games for the Master System, Mark III Master System, over in Japan. Cerny said, okay, sure, we'll do that. Uh, He was only going to stay six months, just thought it would be kind of a fun adventure. Ended up staying longer than that. Made a few games, nothing super notable. Probably the most interesting thing that he made while he, he was there is, while he was there, he went to Disneyland Tokyo and saw the Captain EO ride, the Michael Jackson kind of 3D ride experience. That got him thinking that it might be fun to do 3D on a video game console. And so he actually led the development because he's very knowledgeable in hardware as well as software because of all of his arcade coin-op experience, which is why he would end up being a hardware, the lead hardware engineer on the PlayStation line, you know, 30, 40 years later. He actually pitched and developed a 3D glasses add-on for the Master System. Now, when we say this, we're not talking about, like, oh, you know, a pair of glasses where there's one red lens and one blue. This was actually, you know, using LCD screens or whatever, and it was these pair of, of glasses with these, you know, tiny tiny monitors in your eye or whatever. I mean, you know, it was actually a, a piece of hardware, not just like, oh, let's let's put a pair of glasses in our games that have, like. A red lens and a blue lens like you could get in a cereal box in the 80s. You know, it was a real piece of hardware, a real piece of kit.
0: Not a polarized lens or a active shutter lens where it closes one every frame and shows different images.
1: That's what it is. So no, it didn't have LCDs. I thought that sounded a little funny when I said it. But yes, that's what it used. It used the shutter system. So good call out. Of course, we'll put that in, in the show notes as we always do. Obviously, you won't get the 3D effect in the show notes, but we can at least put a little information on the hardware. So that's probably the most interesting thing he did. He worked on a couple of games, a couple of ports, nothing particularly thrilling, but he ended up doing that for a bit. And after three years of this, you know, he was going to stay for six months. He ends up staying three years. He's kind of ready to move back to the States. It's at that point that Hisashi Suzuki comes to him and says, We have this idea for this new thing. And it's what I've already described uh, earlier in the episode this thing where we blend American staff and Japanese staff, and they learn from each other. It's instructional and educational, as well as building something. It's going to be its own separate thing. That's the other thing that's interesting about it. This organization they're going to put together is going to report directly to Sega of Japan, or rather Sega Enterprises in Japan. There is no such thing as Sega of Japan. We all say that sometimes, but it's, that's actually a misnomer. It's actually going to report directly to the parent company and directly to Nakayama in Japan, even though at this point there is a product development apparatus being developed at Sega of America, led by Kinball Thaser. They're not going to report into those people. It's going to be its entirely separate thing. It's going to be sheltered from the day-to-day rigors of having to feed the product pipeline in the United States and in the West so that it can be a think tank and an educational facility and a game developer kind of all in one. They wanted Cerny to lead it for obvious reasons. Cerny has worked in both countries, so he kind of understands a little bit of the culture. He has picked up, because he's a genius, he has picked up Japanese and is fluent in Japanese, so he can speak both Japanese and English. This is going to be a Western developer at the end of the day, so he's a Westerner with a great understanding of Japan and the Japanese culture and of the Japanese developers at Sega. So he's, he's the obvious choice to lead this thing. The name of this grand institution is going to be the Sega Institute of Technology. S-I-T, because I'm guessing it kind of harkens back to like MIT. I think it's this idea of being an advanced technical research and learning place and not just a game developer. However, Mark Cerny quickly points out a little bit of problem to uh, Mr. Suzuki about this. That combination of letters S and I is a little bit hard for a Japanese person to pronounce just because their language and how they form their letters and their words is so much different than ours. And S in that situation is often going to come out more SH than just S. So that S-I-T acronym could become a little awkward.
0: Yeah, we don't want the Japanese people to be referring to our technical institute as being doo-doo.
1: Exactly. So Cerny suggested, why don't we flip the I and the T and call it the Sega Technical Institute, or STI, instead, so that we don't have any cross-cultural confusion there. So that's what they do. The idea, the plan, is that they're going to bring some of the best designers at Sega's development R&D division in Japan, to the United States. Then they're going to hire a bunch of new developers because they don't really have a development apparatus in the U.S. They're starting to develop one, like I said, but most of their early stuff is outsourced. They don't have like the technical people on staff. They have producers on staff. So they'll hire a bunch of new people in the U.S., like artists and programmers and designers, and then they'll bring some of their more experienced people over from Japan. And that's how they're going to form this kind of blended team. They're going to work in everything. So as it turns out, as we'll see, they release very little coin-op product, but the idea is that they will work in both spheres. Like, they will work on arcade games as well as console games for the new Sega Genesis. Just a really interesting thing, and like I said, it's really unprecedented, because even if you set up a developer in the West, and even if you send a couple of veterans from your Japanese development organization to kind of be a part of that apparatus... This idea that you're specifically blending and that you're hoping that they educate each other in addition to creating games together, that's something that never happened before. Not even, like I said, even when Sega was working with its Gremlin subsidiary back in the late 70s, early 80s, that was more of a, hey, come over and we'll do a little training with you and then you'll go back to Japan and apply what you learned. They kept their product development apparatus completely separate. This idea that you would have an ongoing organization that is learning together and working together and developing together. This is something that really never happened before, and and I think it's probably fair to say has never really happened in this way since, which is just what makes the Sega Technical Institute so fascinating. So that's the plan. Sega immediately screws it up. They were going to bring over about 11 developers from Japan, but they applied for the wrong visa. How do you apply for the wrong visa? The immigration requirements for individuals that aren't just coming as like tourists is a very complicated process and, you know, is governed by many international treaties. Basically, you're trying to make sure that you're not just hiring all sorts of nationals from another country rather than employing the people in your own country. You know, there's different classification levels of talent. There's different justification levels for different kinds of talent. And, of course, work visas are always for limited time periods. There's a lot of rules around visas. Sega had never really done this before, and they applied for the wrong visas. They applied for the visas that are reserved for, like, exceptional, outstanding talent. Probably because of language confusion, cultural confusion, who knows. They were thinking, well, we're sending some of our best game developers over. These are special and unique people, so they need the special unique person visa. That's more the visa for, like, Olympic athletes, Nobel Prize-winning scientists. Like, not just I'm kind of good at my job, but like I'm in the top one half of one percent of people in my job. So it was the wrong visa. So the visas were rejected, but not only were they rejected, but because they applied for so many of them at once and they were the wrong visas, They were actually penalized, and they were temporarily, just temporarily, barred from applying for more work visas because they had done that so wrong. It turned out that as this organization was starting up, this great blending of the Japanese and the Americans was not going to be possible because none of the Japanese people could actually get into the country. Whoops. There was already one Japanese developer that was already in the United States, because they'd always done a little bit of cross-pollination between the two organizations just because of its history. That individual was Yutaka Sugano, who was most notable at this point for developing the arcade hit Shinobi, which I know at the very least you're familiar with the Game Gear version of, because I remember you had that game, I believe, on your Game Gear.
0: I still have the Game Gear and the game.
1: Yes. So it was originally arcade property, and Sugano was the one that created that game, which was a pretty decent hit in the arcade. So it just so happened he was already in the United States. So he was assigned to the Sega Technical Institute as kind of the one Japanese developer who was there at the beginning, and then there were some new Americans hired. They had a couple of things going on in this very early period. The first thing that they were actually assigned to do, and this was definitely more of an assignment, in the future they would have a lot more opportunity to kind of pick their own projects a little bit, but at the very start here they were assigned because Sega had just gotten the rights to Dick Tracy for the Sega consoles. Dick Tracy was supposed to be one of the big blockbuster movies of 1990. They had gotten the license without a lot of time to get a game together, and so because they needed a game sooner rather than later, basically they were assigned to do this. like. Right away, like, please get this game done for us. So that was the very first project. It was a little rushed. It didn't do that well. Uh, Dick Tracy didn't end up being quite the box office success everyone had hoped it would be. Plus the game, because they had such little time, the game didn't ship until early 1991. You know, the movie was out in 1990, so it was a little past the time to be releasing a license at this point. It was a little stale, especially since Dick Tracy didn't end up having the legs that the movie studio or Sega had hoped it would. It's kind of a footnote of a game. There's nothing too remarkable about it. But it was the first game of the Sega Technical Institute, and uh, Sugano of Shinobi fame was the one that led development on it, with largely American staff working with him.
0: I'm looking at some gameplay of Dick Tracy on the Sega Mega Drive Genesis. The graphics are pretty good. I like it. Mm-hmm. You've got Dick Tracy moving around. He gets to shoot some bad guys in the background. He's doing some 2D side action, jumping and punching and shooting bad guys. And then you've got things in the background shooting at him as well. There's actually something a little bit unique for this style of game that you don't typically see.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there were some talented people working on it. Uh, you know, Sugano, as I said, and a programmer who was very briefly at STI by the name of Mike Schwartz, who actually had some experience in the industry. He was the programmer of the infamous Chase the Chuckwagon 2600 game that often gets brought up as one of the terrible games that came out around the time of the crash. It was, of course, a mail-in promotion game. It wasn't a retail game. Schwartz gave it about as much attention as a promotional game deserved, which means that he basically coded it in two furious days of coding as a contractor. He had gone on to work at Electronic Arts and and did some much better work at Electronic Arts, including being on their team that reverse-engineered the Genesis, which was why he was of interest to Sega and ended up joining STI to work on this Dick Tracy game. He left STI soon after he didn't stay. But definitely an interesting fellow. Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, is, has interviewed him. Uh, he went on to do Bubsy, the infamous Bubsy, <laughs> at, at Accolade, as well as a programmer. So he had quite a journey. He's a good programmer. Sugano is a good designer. There was actually one other Japanese staff member on the game who, again, happened to make it into the country, one of the few people that, that did, uh, Takishi Doi, which I'm sure I horribly pronounced that last name, but spelled D-O-I. He came in to do the art. You know, it kind of almost worked in the way that the STI collaboration was supposed to work. The problem with the game was more that the Dick Tracy license did not end up being a particularly strong license. It was more a license problem than it was a game problem. That was kind of the first rushed into production project that they did. After that, there were kind of two more projects that they started. Sugano went on then to start working on a coin-operated game, which never saw the light of day. But it was going to be a side-scrolling shooter that used a trackball somehow. We don't have many details on it because it never did come out. I mean, it didn't even go out on test. I mean, it was scratched before it was ever finished. But, you know, this idea that STI was going to do coin-op, not just console games, you can see right here because, you know, Sugano's first project after Dick Tracy was to do a coin-op game. Then at the same time, some of the American staff primarily were kind of charged with creating a new action game that would appeal to the West. So they came up with a Mario clone, sort of. I mean, it's not a straight clone, but it's a very similar action game called Kid Chameleon. Kind of the hook of Kid Chameleon, a lot of the gameplay was very similar to Mario, right down to the fact that he could break bricks and the side-scrolling levels and whatnot. I mean, it's very reminiscent of Mario in a lot of ways. Kind of the gimmick of it was that the character had a lot of different power-ups. So, of course, Mario, by this point, it's, I think this, again, is kind of based on the Super Mario Brothers 3 paradigm, because, of course, Mario in, in Super Mario 3 didn't just have his mushroom and his fire flower, he had his raccoon tail to fly, he had his hammer suit, his frog suit, you know, he had all of these really special abilities. So Kid Chameleon could collect masks in levels, and different masks would give him different abilities. Again, that's kind of where the name Kid Chameleon, I think, came from, because he could change with these masks to take on all of these specialized abilities. These abilities weren't just new ways of fighting, though some of them were new ways of fighting, but there was one that allowed him to climb walls, for instance. There were some that allowed him to fly, just like the raccoon tail in Mario. There was one that allowed him to reveal hidden blocks. You know, so kind of special ability upgrades but very much a side-scrolling action game in the Mario vein. I mean, it was fine. This one was basically done entirely by American staff. There was one Japanese artist, again, that had happened to make it over, Yasushi Yamaguchi, who provided some of the art. But it was mostly American staff. Largely new hires, though, again, there was a veteran programmer. They tried to get a few veteran programmers, but none of them ended up staying long. This time, the veteran programmer was uh, Steve Waita who had been at Atari, and again did not stay at the company all of that long. Again, it was fine. I mean, it's not a bad game. It's not a particularly standout game. It's just kind of there. I think it did okay. We don't have sales figures, but I think it did fine for the company. You know, it wasn't anything particularly super-duper extra exciting. It was Sega's stab at Mario. Just like Alex Kidd had been Sega's stab at Mario just a couple of years before.
0: (laughs) I can see what you mean, so sort of like it's just a standard side-scrolling adventure, figure-out-the-puzzle-where-the-heck-am-I-going kind of games. It had some interesting gimmicks, like you said, the climbing thing where you have this knight helmet Mm -hmm. that he puts on, and then he can climb walls. He has this hockey mask, and then he has an axe, I guess, to go the whole Jason route and uh, (laughs) take down the enemies. He's got a very 80s metal mat that almost looked like a Triceratops, <laughs> sort of like what you would see in a punk action 80s movie like Mad Max. And he's like smashing his head into things and right, breaking up right. blocks straight on and up and down, left and right. It's a lot of just figuring out where to go and then having to write Mask at the appropriate time. right? Yeah, like you said, there's something that's missing from it. And you can sort of see this with a lot of different games where you look at something like Mario, there's just like some little extra spice that just sort of brings it all together, even if it might be older there. There's almost a little bit of stiffness to it. There's, mm-hmm. There's a certain, and I'm not sure how to properly articulate this, where this is what you see and experience when you look at a B-class game, something that's not Mm -hmm. a class leader like a Sonic, a Super Mario, the thing that you really think of when you think of a console. This is what third-party developers do, people who don't really understand the system as well, or maybe don't have the time or effort to put that extra little bit of polish or whatever it is that really just makes the concept and everything meld together be it animation, or something with timing, or music, or something. Mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone has seen this. You look at the game and you go, this is a good concept in theory, but there's nothing there to really excite and wow me.
1: Exactly. Yeah, you know, like I said, most of these people were new. Most of these people were learning. They didn't have quite the level of experienced Japanese development staff that they were hoping to have at this time to make these early games. They're technically competent, but like you said, they're they're just missing that little something. Kid Chameleon comes out in early 1992. At this point, STI has released two games, and they're both just kind of there. What really changes the fortune of the studio, and ultimately even determines the future direction of the studio for good or ill, is when STI at that point ends up becoming the hotbed of development for the Sonic the Hedgehog series. We've done an episode on Sonic, so I don't want to belabor too much of the point and go into too much detail on the games, because we kind of covered the whole 16-bit series in our Sonic episode. But we do need to talk about it a little bit, because this is really how STI ends up being defined. So basically what happened is, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog was released in 1991, and it became a big hit. As we know, I mean, big hit is almost an understatement. The problem is, there was huge tension between Sega and the main programmer on the game, Yuji Naka. Yuji Naka is a difficult individual. He's an absolutely brilliant programmer. Nobody would ever doubt that. And you see it again and again on these early games. I mean, he was the one responsible for the first person dungeons in Phantasy Star. And who would have ever thought you could do that on a Master System? He programmed the Ghouls and Ghosts port to the Sega Genesis and blew everybody away with how smooth and arcade-like that port was. And, of course, he programmed Sonic the Hedgehog, which defined Gotta Go Fast on the Sega Genesis. He's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant programmer. He's also a perfectionist, and he is also very quick to show his disapproval or disdain for people who cannot live up to his standards and remember that his standard is perfection, which means nobody can live up to his standard. This is from interviews with multiple people. Just to be clear, so people, you know, know where we're coming from, it's not like one person has said this about Yuji Naka. It's not like this may be one person who has an axe to grind has said this about Yuji Naka. This is what everybody, both in Japan and in the United States, say about Yuji Naka. He is brilliant, but he is difficult. Sonic the Hedgehog ran over schedule and over budget. I think that combined with the fact that he was not always an easy person to work with, meant that even though Sonic the Hedgehog was a big success, management was very displeased with Naka personally with how the project went. Naka was very displeased that they were displeased because I think his perspective was, I gave you your hit. I gave you your on train to the West. And this is the thanks I get. So Yuji Naka quit Sega. He left. He was like, if this is how you're going to treat me, I'm going to take my toys and go home. So Cerny, of course, Cerny has these contacts, you know, he knows the people in Japan really well. He learns about this and he knows Naka because Naka got his start on the master system, you know, the Sega SG-1000, you know, it was called, the first version was called in Japan. Naka got his start on that system just like Cerny did. So they were working together, not directly together, like they made games together, but the way Sega's product development was organized at that time is there were basically 40 people in one room. They were all working on their own projects. It was usually no more than like two people to a project, but they were all kind of there mingling. So, you know, he knew Naka. He knew what a great programmer Naka was. When he heard that, he was like, oh, no, no. A, we don't want to lose this guy for Sega. And B, let's get him over to the U.S. because his friction was with the Japanese management. Let's put some distance there. And this really furthers the goal of bringing together the best of what Japan and the U.S. have to offer. So he goes to Japan and tracks down Naka and implores him to come back and work at STI. Tells him that STI is very isolated from the rest of the management of the company, that he's going to be able to work on what he wants to work on, he's not going to be bothered by these people that have been bothering him, and we'll see about getting you an increase in salary and all of this as, as well. So Naka says yes, and he joins STI. By this time, of course, other individuals are starting to join STI as well. From Japan, I mean. So we're finally starting to get this blending. This leads to the one project, literally the only project, that is created by a perfectly blended team of Japanese and American developers. That is Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which is developed at STI. We're not going to go into huge detail on the product, because we've done Sonic, but it really did bring together some of the best of what they both had to offer, because the Japanese had the art and the animation down so beautifully, and they could provide that. The Americans tested their games more. They had testing departments, QA departments, at a time when Japan really didn't. So the QA in the United States was really more outstanding there were some real contributions made by the American staff, even though it was Naka and other people from Japan that were primarily driving this thing. One of the things that the game's known for is its kind of 3D bonus stages. That was pretty much entirely the work or the brainchild, not entirely the work, but the brainchild of Western staff. Because by this time, Cerny had hired another veteran to be the art director for STI a gentleman by the name of Tim Skelly, who was notable for the games that he did at Cinematronics, like Warrior and Ripoff, in the early 1980s. He had become a programmer, but he was really an artist by trade, even though he could also make games. So he was brought in to be the art director at STI. When Bill Willis, one of the American programmers hired, was trying to put together these bonus stages that they knew they wanted in the game, it was Skelly who suggested... You know, there's this Atari arcade game called Stun Runner that has these polygonal tunnels. You're basically taking this futuristic craft through these polygonal tunnels. That would probably make for some exciting, fast gameplay with Sonic. And since it's tunnels, you don't have to worry too much about your field of vision and how much you're rendering in this kind of pseudo-3D way, so we can probably make the system do that. That was kind of the main contribution of the American staff to this whole thing, was these bonus stages though Yutaka Sugano was the one that ended up designing them. It became an all-hands-on-deck thing because they kind of started on the Sonic sequel late. Sega, according to Cerny, kind of asked for it late. They didn't have a lot of time to do it, so by the end, everyone was being thrown on it. Uh, Sugano's arcade project was canceled, and the people working on that were thrown onto Sonic. They also brought in more staff from Japan to finish the game. It was kind of a lightning finish. It was a hard project. But they got the game done, and of course it had that worldwide uh, release in November 1992, Sonic Tuesday, and of course it went on to be a massive hit. It was this perfect exemplar of this idea of STI, of the best of Japan and the best of the United States working together to create something that was truly monumental and truly successful. The problem is, it also showed that this would never, ever work again. A lot of sites, a lot of uh, historical sites that talk about this, talk about how it had to do with language barriers, cultural barriers, getting a team with people from just two divergent of backgrounds to try to work together. There was some of that. It's certainly true that the Japanese way of working is very different. I think we've talked about this in one of our episodes, but the Japanese, in this time period, they would sleep under their desks. I mean, you would work 12, 15-hour days, and you would take naps under your desk. I mean, that was expected of you. Yes, there's crunch in the American development context, where you may go for weeks or months or, in very extreme cases, years of doing extra hours to finish a game. We're not talking about crunch in the American sense. We're talking about something that was just expected of Japanese staff all the time. They would work 12, 15-hour days, and they would take naps under their desks and this kind of thing. And that was just not a lifestyle that the American staff were ever going to emulate. It's also true they had different methods of programming. They had different art styles. The Japanese art style was very different than the Americans. So there were some problems like that. But those aren't problems that could be insurmountable. The main problem, actually, once again, ended up being Yuji Naka. Because Naka is a perfectionist who is difficult to work with. And when you add all of this cultural difference on top, Naka basically never wanted to work with American staff again. Some of the later Sonic games he worked on, there'd be one or two Americans doing this or that, like concept art or music. But he basically said, no, the Americans don't work like me. I don't want to work with them. This is awful. Never again. He also doesn't take direction very well, which, you know, that's part of why he quit Sega. He actually started really chafing and butting heads with Mark Cerny, the guy that brought him over in the first place, gave him the second chance within Sega. Cerny was technically, as the head of STI, was running this as kind of the producer. But they butted heads, and it got so bad that Naka refused to work with Cerny any longer. Cerny was actually taken off the project. A Japanese executive, a business guy, not a technical guy, a Japanese executive by the name of Masaharu Yoshi, who had been with the company since 1970, a veteran guy, was brought in to be the producer and see the game over the finish line. Then, very soon after, Mark Cerny actually left STI. We don't have all the details there, but probably in large part because of the conflicts that he had with Naka. Shinobu Toyota, the executive vice president of Sega of America, who served as the liaison between Sega of America and Sega back in Japan, took control of STI on a very temporary basis, just to kind of keep the lights on and get Sonic 2 over the finish line. After which, a new head was brought in, another Atari veteran by the name of Roger Hector. Hector actually started as an industrial designer doing cabinet art and cabinet design at Atari. He joined in 1976. He joined at a time when the company was still very freewheeling and loose, and he was able to branch out into game design because everyone was encouraged to brainstorm ideas and and contribute in that early kind of Atari environment. After Atari, he had gone to Electronic Arts. He was a few places, but one place he went was Electronic Arts, where he was briefly head of their action and sports division in the late 1980s. Uh, so as a manager, he had experience managing teams. Then he actually took a producer role with Disney. And that's how his Sega connection developed, because Disney did some projects with Sega. Again, it's Nakayama wants to be the Disney of, of video games. So why not work with the Disney of, you know, Disney? They did early games like Castle of Illusion starring Mickey Mouse, which were collaborations between Disney and Sega. All of the development staff were Sega people. Sega created the games, but they worked very closely with Disney on look and feel and maintaining the integrity of the characters and the settings and all of that kind of thing. Roger Hector was the Disney producer working with Sega on these Disney games, so he had a relationship with Sega. He had experience managing teams of people, so they brought Roger Hector in to be the new head of the STI. Hector did what he could to promote cross-cultural initiatives. He had language classes at at STI where people could learn a little bit of the other language. He did things to try to bring the teams a little closer together, but he never tried to force them together in the way Sonic 2 development had been, because it was very clear that Yuji Naka— was not going to have any of that, and, and Hector didn't want to fight that fight under Roger Hector, STI never again quite became that utopian ideal of what it was supposed to be of blended American Japanese teams working together in harmony and bringing the best of each. Now, I mean, it still accomplished some of that. I mean, you're you're still around the other team, so you're still learning from the people around you. Some of that educational stuff is still there. And there was a small amount of overlap. You know, there was a small number of Japanese staff working on some of these American games, a small number of American staff working on the Sonic games. But it was never again after Sonic 2 quite what everyone had kind of hoped it would be in the beginning. It was still its own separate thing. It was still independent, free of these pressures and and all of that. And it was still trying to do creative and interesting things. Kind of the next part of the story, you kind of have to talk about the two teams separately because it's really almost two different things going on you have the Sonic people, Naka's people, continuing to put out Sonic games. They put out Sonic 3 and Sonic and Knuckles in 1994. At that point, Naka leaves to go back to Japan because he learns that the Saturn's coming, the American office and STI haven't really been engaging in a large way with the Saturn yet, and he wants to go make Saturn games. So after Sonic and Knuckles, Naka and most of his people return to Japan. Meanwhile, you have the American staff that are doing a combination of kind of figuring out some of their own things to try to do, some of which make it to market, some of which don't, and filling in gaps that end up developing because of what's going on with the Sonic people. The big exemplar of that, and and probably the most successful game that the purely American side of the company did, was the 1993 game Sonic Spinball. Basically what happened there is Yuji Naka and his team at S.T.I. were working on Sonic 3, which was meant to be the holiday release in 93. You know, Sonic the Hedgehog came out in 91. Sonic Hedgehog 2 came out in 1992. Now we want another Sonic game in 1993. However, it turned out that Naka was being very ambitious with Sonic 3, and they had spent a good deal of the beginning of the development cycle working on doing a 3D Sonic using Sega's new graphical chip, the Sega Virtua processor which was a co-graphical chip that they were planning to use in some of their games, very similar to how you had the Super FX chip that powered things like Star Fox on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. So they experimented with 3D. It turned out they weren't going to be able to use the Sega Virtual processor, I think because of cost as much as anything. So then they had to go back and start doing the traditional 2D thing again. They lost a lot of time. The development schedule slipped. It wasn't going to come out until 94. This, of course, famously also led it to be split in two, into both Sonic 3 and Sonic and Knuckles, because as we discussed in our Sonic episode, there was a hard stop date of February 1994, by which time Sonic 3 had to be out because there was a Happy Meal promotion that Sega had already entered into with McDonald's, so they had to have a new Sonic game in time for that promotion. Which meant that they ended up splitting the game in two, and they did Sonic 3, and then Sonic and Knuckles, and of course you could plug the two games together to create a giant game. The Tower of Power. Exactly. Because of all of those shenanigans, there wasn't going to be a Sonic game for Holiday 1993, which was bad for Sega. It it was their big hit. So the STI staff were asked to fill the void with a smaller game. They weren't expected to do a full-fledged Sonic game, like Sonic 2 or Sonic 3, but just a little spin-off, <laughs> pun intended, I guess, so that they could keep the Sonic brand going in that holiday season. This resulted in the creation of the game Sonic Spinball. Basically, the idea was one of the stages that was most popular in Sonic the Hedgehog 2 was the casino stage. Lots of bright lights and bouncing around, almost pinball-like in some ways. So, it was suggested that they do a spin off game that really focused on being similar to that casino stage of Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Design of this game fell to a guy by the name of Peter Morawik, who was of Czech origin and who had joined STI in, I believe, 1992, somewhere around there. As his first job in video games, he had done a lot of computer graphics work. He had played around on his Amiga and done a lot of computer graphics stuff, but he had never done games before. As an offshoot of the work he was doing in graphics, he was kind of interested in breaking into that space, so he basically pestered Mark Cerny until Cerny finally gave him a job. He was originally assigned to Sugano's point-op game, his side-scrolling shooter with trackball that was never released. Then he was thrown onto Sonic 2 at the end, just like so many people were. Then after that, he was starting to develop some of his own ideas as a game designer, but then he was also asked to put those aside briefly and work on this Sonic Spinball game. Basically, what he decided to do is he decided to take that casino stage and make it even more pinball-like. He wanted to really emphasize those pinball features of the casino stage of Sonic 2, which had things like what were essentially bumpers, and it had things that were essentially flippers— He just wanted to bring out those elements more, and he was actually inspired by an Amiga game by the name of Pinball Dreams, made by Digital Illusions, which would later go on to do the Battlefield series for Electronic Arts. They had made a really slick pinball game for the Amiga called Pinball Dreams. Guided by Pinball Dreams and by this casino stage, he created this pinball game Sonic Spinball. It's only four levels. It's a small game. It's meant to be small. But you're basically bouncing around the screen to collect all the Chaos Emeralds in the stage and then defeat the boss. It wasn't anything big or fancy, but the gameplay was solid. The concept was solid, and it was a nice little hit for Sega in 1993 that kept the franchise alive while Naka was doing his thing. I think it's fair to say, like I said, that Spinball was the most successful product released by this mainly American side of STI. Obviously, overall, it didn't have the same impact as the Sonic games released by STI, but it it was a nice little game for them. Once he finished Spinball, Morrowick was able to return to the independent, uh, the original, I mean, concept that he had started on and was asked to put aside to complete this game which is another interesting game that was released by STI in 1995 by the name of Comics Zone. Comics Zone is actually a very interesting game. It was released so late in the Genesis life cycle when people were already looking towards the PlayStation and the Saturn that it's been kind of overlooked as a game. It's really quite interesting. It's a beat-em-up. But the stages are arranged as individual panels of a comic strip or a comic book. You actually have to clear the panel that you're in. You can see multiple panels on the screen at once. And you have to clear the panel you're in to move on to the next panel. You progress through this beat-em-up in this comic book style. It's very
0: original. You can actually choose which panel you're going to next. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. When they talk, they have that traditional comic bubble of, I'm saying my thing. It's a very interesting little project that probably
1: didn't get as much attention as it deserved just because the timing of it coming out was so bad. There were a couple of influences on this game. First of all, Week was really big into the beat 'em em up games, your Double Dragons final fights of the world. He just really liked the genre. Second, even though he wasn't big into comic books, A lot of the staff of STI at the time were—I mean, this was the early 90s when the comic book industry was in one of its big upswing periods—he would often go down to the comic book stores with his fellow staff of STI on lunches or whatever else and be with them when they were browsing comics. And so he kind of got this idea of combining these two very popular things, beat-em-up games and comic books. In terms of the art style, he was also inspired by the music video to the uh, 1980s aha hit, Take On Me which very famously was done in this sketch style where this sketched protagonist on this notepad comes to life and is animated. We can put that in the show notes. So he was kind of inspired by that for the look of the game as well. I mean, he wasn't the artist on it, but he was the designer, so he's influencing that. You throw this all together and you get Comic Zone, which is cool, but only does so-so because it's coming out so late. You It went through a long development cycle These are still the newer Sega of America staff. It's not the Japanese staff that are both experienced and also work 12 hours and sleep under their desks. You know, they could do a good job with it. It's not like it was delayed or anything, but it's just, it takes them a while to get it together, (laughs) to get the game done. But really an interesting game. The other game that comes out in 1995 from the STI folks on the American side that's very interesting is a game called The Ooze. The ooze, unfortunately, wasn't that great of a game. It was interesting graphically. What happened is that one of the people at STI, Dave Sanner, came up with a really interesting algorithm for the Sega Genesis that allowed them to create this amorphous liquidy blob that flowed in a more realistic manner across the screen. They thought this algorithm was so cool that they wanted to come up with a way to use this algorithm in a game. They came up with this concept of this main protagonist being this ooze. It's this person that suffered a tragic accident, kind of a superhero type thing, and and turned into this amorphous ooze blob. So now he's fighting the bad guys as the ooze. They did these overhead stages, and it's just kind of cool the way the ooze kind of moves around the block on the stage. They also made it that as you defeat and devour enemies, you get bigger, and as you take hits from enemies, it gets smaller, so it's expanding, it's contracting, it's oozing around objects. It's a kind of cool idea, conceptually, and kind of cool programmatically. Turns out that you need more than just an algorithm to develop a good game. The game design wasn't all there. The animation was kind of choppy. It had shortcomings as a game, and plus it was released in late 1995. I mean, it was released after the Saturn and the PlayStation were coming out. So Sega put absolutely no marketing push behind it at all, because by this time all focus was on the next-gen systems. So the use really kind of sank in the marketplace. It wasn't necessarily a great game, but it's just another look at kind of how interesting STI was from a perspective of trying new things and inventing new things and see where they go. With something like Comic Zone, it worked very well. It was a good game and innovative. With the Ooze, it worked, you know, a little less well.
0: I do like how you can change colors by getting power-ups, and it gets you new ability to move faster or more durability or something going on here.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, that's kind of the 95 output. I mean, there are some other games. We're not going over every game they did. We're just going over some of the more interesting ones. But those were kind of the more interesting 95 output. At this point, things are changing at Sega. It's the later years of the Genesis. We've talked about how Sega starts losing money. We have an episode on this. We talked about the mixed reception to the Saturn. STI starts kind of losing its way a little bit, too. One of the real things they struggle with is they're once again being asked to make another Sonic game. They did Sonic Spinball. They had some success with it. Yuji Knockett does get Sonic 3 and Sonic and & Knuckles out in 1994. Those are both STI games. But as I said, after that, Yuji Naka goes back to Japan because he wants to work on the Saturn and STI has really not been given any input. They haven't been told about the Saturn really at all, even though the Saturn's been under development since 1993. I mean, obviously, the system doesn't come out till 95, but it's been under development since 92, 93. They could have been brought in with early dev kits and whatnot. And at least according to Naka, the Saturn just wasn't part of what they were doing. America was totally focused on the Genesis, and so STI was focused on the Genesis. Naka leaves and goes back to Japan, but he's also sick of doing Sonic games. So when he goes back to Japan to work on Saturn, he's not doing it to work on a Sonic game. He's going back to make Nights into Dreams. He doesn't want to do a Sonic game. Well, Sega needs a Sonic game because that's their Mario. They're launching a new system. They need Sonic. So once again, STI is conscripted to do it. But there are a few problems, one of which is that Naka just doesn't like the idea of anyone but him doing Sonic either. There's a possessiveness there. Naka did some great things for Sega, but he was also something of a blocker. So the very first attempt by STI to do another Sonic game was something that appears to have been internally known as Sonic 16, but that was just a, you know, code name. which was when the cartoon was going to come out, they were going to make a game that was kind of based on the cartoon a little bit. It was going to be a little more story-driven, still kind of have fast action, but not be focused entirely on fast action. It would have some story as well, since it's being an adaptation of a cartoon. They do a little work on that. Naka hates it and basically uses his clout to kill it. Then after that, they start working on another Sonic game that ends up going by the codename Sonic Extreme, which there's so much contradictory information on what it looked like, how it was developed, that I really don't want to, within the confines of the episode, go into the development history of Sonic Extreme. I just want to identify that it's there from the perspective of, of STI was working on it. It was originally going to be on the 32X, Then when they realized the 32X didn't have the oomph, it was going to be on the Saturn. But at some point, they also experimented with putting it on what was going to be a new Saturn. Because Sega was having so much confusion, so much struggle in this period, they were actually working with NVIDIA to create an enhanced version of the Saturn based on NVIDIA graphics chips. NVIDIA was a brand new company at this time. They had not really established themselves. They had a a chipset, the NV1, that did quadrilaterals just like Sega's VDP did, you know, when everyone else was doing triangles for their geometric shapes for three-dimensional graphics. Sega invested heavily in NVIDIA. They were going to adapt the NV1 or perhaps the NV2, which was the chipset they were working on as their next-gen thing, into an upgraded Saturn because the Saturn was having all sorts of trouble as a 3D console compared to the PlayStation. The code name for that was the V08, which had to do, I think, with the numbering of one of NVIDIA's chips, the Saturn V08. They wasted more time adapting this extreme game to the V08 hardware. Then that was completely canned, in part because NVIDIA was a new company. They were trying to rush this into production, and they just didn't have the capability at that time to rush something into production, and the prototypes weren't working right. So Sega got fed up and pulled the plug on that and moved on to actually working on their next generation, what became the Dreamcast. But they lost more time working on this special Saturn. Then they had to move it back to the Saturn. So it's changing all the time. The design's changing all the time. The tech is changing all the time. It never comes together. It completely falls apart, and that's a big part of the reason why there's never a Sonic game on the Saturn. Naka's just not interested in doing one back in Japan, and all the attempts at STI to do one just fall apart for a variety of factors. It was very messy. The one final kind of bright spot in this period, the one kind of successful game that STI ends up releasing, is actually a coin-op game. They finally get a coin-op game out called Die Hard Arcade, adapting the Die Hard movies. It's released in 1996. It was a collaboration between STI and AM1, one of the arcade development studios at the Japanese company. It was directed by Makoto Uchida, who is most well-known for Golden Axe. That was his thing. Altered Beast and Golden Axe were his things. Uchida came over to the United States. A bunch of his AM1 colleagues came over to the United States, and they developed the game in tandem with STI in the West. It's not like one of the most successful arcade machines of all time or whatever, but it did well. It did fine.
0: It is kind of interesting. You got that initial 3D arcade look of the era. It's a beat-em-up thing going on. Mm -hmm. All that 3D perspective changes and moving around left and right, different zones, very blocky, very obviously polygonal characters and animation, but it is smooth and it seems responsive, at least from the gameplay footage I'm looking at.
1: Even though most of the staff was Japanese, there weren't that many American staff on it. It was kind of a last gasp for this kind of idea of this collaborative effort between these two sides. Because a lot of AM1 designers and and engineers came over. And then STI provided additional artists and animators from their team. Howard Drawson, who did the music for several STI games, did the music. So it was kind of a last gasp of this ideal of STI. And, And it produced another game that was pretty solid. It's just at this point, the company was in such turmoil. You know, the transition to Saturn had not gone well. Sega was, quite frankly, under the influence of Asao Okawa, who was never particularly happy with the hardware business in the first place, was starting to explore life after hardware. Yes, they did do the Dreamcast console. But by this point, it's pretty clear Okawa was already trying to look at the future, and he didn't want to be involved in this anymore. So... They actually closed up Sega of America's main product development apparatus and created a new organization called SegaSoft that was actually majority owned by CSK, which was Sega's parent company, Asao Okawa's company. If you want the full details on all that relationship, we have our Sega episodes. But basically, Okawa, the chairman of Sega, is trying to influence a new direction for the company where they focus on software on other platforms, it spearheads the creation of SegaSoft which is billed as a company that will work on anybody's platforms. While some people speculated this meant that Sega might release PlayStation games, in practice, SegaSoft only released games on Sega Saturn and on the PC. They never actually released games on rival consoles in this period. But still, the idea was that we're not just looking at our own platforms now. We're starting to move into this idea that maybe Sega isn't a hardware company in the future. With the internal product development basically being shut down, STI kind of morphs into something else. STI takes on some localization responsibilities and some producing responsibilities for external products. It's kind of unclear exactly what the end of the Sega Technical Institute looks like, because these are all internal organizations. You know, it's not like they were required to report exactly how they disposed of it. But it seems like it mostly at the end of 1996 went defunct, but it basically transitioned into being the new Sega internal product development apparatus to replace what they pushed out with SegaSoft. But in this case, internal development didn't mean making their own stuff, it meant doing localization, you know, producing outside stuff and whatnot. It kind of just vanished, disappeared back into the larger Sega beast. I think Die Hard Arcade was the last thing they actually released. I'm, I'm not 100% on that, but I'm pretty sure it was. And it, it just kind of faded away. It's an interesting story of this kind of brief moment when Sega was trying to bring East and West together in, in new and exciting ways.
0: Some success, a lot of failures, and then ultimately, just like every other Japanese company having an American branch, localization and some light producing. <laughs> pretty much. Okay, Sega, you're out to past year with the STI, so we're gonna have to go find some party hats and some Alchema Hall to celebrate the new year as we delve into a new topic.
1: That's right. Actually, uh, for this new topic in the new year, I want to revisit a little bit of an old topic, I think, this time. That is the Mattel in television. I know we talked about Mattel. I see an episode. So, way back in the dark ages of They Create Worlds, in episode 26 in 2016, we did an episode on Mattel Electronics, kind of the whole sweep of Mattel Electronics. But TCW has come a long way since 2016. Not only have I developed more sources, come across more things, interviewed more people since then, but we've also become more sophisticated storytellers and told more sophisticated stories. It's really time for an update. Now, it's going to technically be a different topic because we're not going to do all of Mattel Electronics this time. We are going to focus on the Intellivision. I think this is one of these things where this episode will be replaced so slowly over time. We'll do an episode on the Intellivision. Maybe some other time we'll do an episode on the handhelds. I don't know.
0: Expand them out so you have the overarching episode and then if you want to go into a specific episode in order to delve into I really want to know about the Mattel handheld I love those things we'll delve into an episode on that I love the Intellivision I want to delve into that I don't even know if Mattel made a computer but if they did that we might do an episode on that
1: who knows We discussed that computer in our Home Computer Price Wars episodes, Jeffrey. The Mattel Aquarius, released in 1983, which the staff derisively said the tagline should be the computer of the 1970s today. (laughs) So yes, we can do all of this and more. It will be a little bit of a repeat of that episode, but it'll be a little more focused, and I know so much more than I did when we did that episode in 2016. So I'm really excited to kind of delve in. Even though this is not in any way the reason I chose this, it makes sense as a New Year's episode because, you know, it's kind of out with the old and in with the new on our understanding of Mattel and its Intellivision system.
0: Okay. Well, get your party hats, your sparkling grape juice, whatever you want to do in celebration of the new year, and join us after you're done celebrating and lay your head down to rest listening to Mattel and the Intellivision. Next time. On they Create World, the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, volume 177. <laughs> check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episode. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.